Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is Protection Warfighting Function. With me today is Brigadier General Jim Bonner, the Maneuver Support Center of Excellence and Fort Leonard Wood Commanding General. Colonel Neve Nell, Commandant, U.S. Army Military Police School, and Colonel Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD. Gentlemen, ma'am, welcome to the show. So today we're discussing one of the largest and most diverse warfighting functions, and that's protection. Doctrinally, by my count, there are 16 protection tasks that run the gamut from detention operations to air and missile defense. And this suggests some, a few challenges that we want to discuss later, I think. But before we get there, I'd like to start with the doctrine. Uh, so Colonel Creed, can you lead us off with a definition of protection and maybe run through some of the various okay. protection tasks? All right, so when we talk about uh, definitions of protection, we start with joint uh, doctrine, okay? Because Army doctrine has got to be congruent with joint doctrine. So joint doctrine defines protection uh, as the preservation of the effectiveness and survivability of mission-related military and non-military personnel, equipment, facilities, information, and infrastructure deployed or located within or outside the boundaries of a given operational area. And then from an Army perspective, we narrow down to addressing it as a warfighting function. Uh, so Army Doctrine and Army Doctrine Publication 3.0, which is called Operations, uh, defines the protection warfighting function as the related tasks and systems that preserve the force so the commander can apply maximum combat power to accomplish the mission. So the emphasis on that uh, definition is preserving the force. So we're we're talking about systems and capabilities designed to do specifically that. And so um, using that box of chocolates metaphor from Forrest Gump or all the different kinds of shrimp, you know, the the bubble would talk through, we've got a a big list. And that list has been somewhat fungible over time. In other words, as we've looked at protection, we've added some tasks. From time to time, we may pull some out. I think the last turn of ADP 337, which is uh, our protection Army doctrinal publication, probably has the most comprehensive look at protection uh, so far. So we start with survivability operations, right? And who has proponency for survivability operations in the Army? It's the engineer branch work survivability. We have force health protection, which the Medical Center of Excellence uh, in San Antonio has responsibility for. We have CBRN operations, chemical, uh, biological, radio, radiological, and, and, and nuclear operation. Uh, explosive Ordnance Disposal Support, or EOD, which is uh, the Sustainment Center of Excellence. Air and Missile Defense down at Fort Sill. Personnel Recovery here at the Mission Command Center. Detention Operations at Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, risk Management, Physical Security. Those are very broad, broadly applicable things that essentially commanders and staffs enforce uh, within their formations, right? Um, So there's no specific proponency. It's a leadership responsibility. Uh, Physical security, uh, anti-terrorism, police operations, again, back to Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, Populace and resource control. I mean, that could be the purpose of an operation in and of itself, right, conducted by maneuver forces. Uh, Area security, which uh, all types of formations have responsibility up to a limited uh, extent uh, for securing themselves, right, Uh, and the areas in which they transit. Um, cybersecurity and defense, which is the cyber center, electromagnetic protection, and then operational security. And operational security 
uh, is another one of those that while we may have an office that's in charge of it you know, for doing our doctrinal publications and our regulations and policy and those kinds of things, uh, and I think that largely resi resides up at the headquarters DA. But OPSEC is something that is manifest itself through how we actually conduct operations in the first place, how we plan and execute those, the discipline with which we execute those light, light noise, uh, EMS, electromagnetic spectrum discipline, uh, all of those things that reduce your signature and make it harder for an adversary or an enemy to determine what you're doing. So it, it fits into protection as a warfighting function, but it's not one person's responsibility. And I think the key, the way you explained it, right, it, it's not linear, mm -hmm. right? It's very, it's comprehensive, it's layered, and it's got a redundant approach to it. Yes, sir. When you start looking at all the, that you were just discussing. Yes, sir. So it's an incredibly diverse list of tasks with one thing in common, and that's to preserve combat power or preserve the force. Now, <clears throat> Sir Colonel Creed, my next question is, how do we organize that doctrinally? So if we want to get smart on protection, how do, how do I, I find that and look at it? All right, so we have a Keystone publication. That means it's the overarching publication that addresses, in a very broad sense, the fundamentals associated with protection. And so that's Army Doctrinal Publication 337, 3-37. It's called Protection. Um, and it has what we call hooks in it, written throughout it. So when we go through that list of 16 different things, there's hooks to other doctrinal references that get into detail about by warfighting function in some cases or by capability in others. Uh, you know, which field manuals to go to uh, to get a detailed uh, treatise on, on, on the particular topic you're talking about. So, you know, FM 3-01, which is U.S. Army Air and Missile Defense Operations, right? That's a large part uh, of protecting the force, particularly when you're talking about conflicts with peer threats that have significant uh, aerial capabilities, right? Um, FM 311, the CBRN operations, is another one. Broadly applicable to the force. Somebody's responsible and has proponency for that, but it's something that needs to be understood by all formations, not just the ones that are, are conducting those things. Um, then you get up in the higher level publications. Uh, FM 327, Army Global Ballistic Missile Defense Operations. I mean, that's up at the strategic level, right? Um, and then you get into things that are more applicable down to the lower tactical levels, the FM 334 engineer operations, 339, the military police operations, or 363, detainee operations. And then you say to yourself, well, detainee operations, I mean, what has that got to do with protection? But if you don't know how to do detainee operations and you have an uh, enemy that you thought you defeated but you've not detained the people that, uh, that you've been recently fighting, they become a resource for protecting a con protracting a conflict, and, and that could contribute to an insurgency. And we've seen that that movie before, right? So, all of these things, as General Bonner said, they they have to happen together. Um, they're layered. Um, they work in parallel. Sometimes they work in sequence. Uh, but to achieve the protection, you know, to preserve that combat power, we have to be able to do all of these things at the various echelons. And he, he missed his one chance to give a, a plug to your own uh, to your own element there. You just put out the audio version of 3-37 last week. So. Yeah, oh, that's right, ma'am. I forgot. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so nice. You could, that's the only one that I know that unless you have air and missile defense on audio, I think 337 might be the only one out of that list that's audio. Yes, ma'am, it is. Now, I think we're good to, we've got a list coming up this year for our to-dos. 
So engineer operations and military police operations will be audio books. Looking this forward year. to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate the audio versions. Uh, Rachel, you all did a great, great so, job. So do the students, I'm sure. Uh, so before we dive too much further down into the weeds, uh, I, I want to take a step back and look at protection from a big picture. And as a concept, it's not new to the Army. It's protection as a warfighting function has been around since the 1982 version of then FM 100-5, our ops manual. However, protection is the only warfighting function without a dedicated center of excellence. So, General Bonner, why is that, and what are the, some of the implications from your foxhole? Yeah, so, you know, protection is an Army mission, mm-hmm. right, and it's just not a Fort Leonard Wood mission. And it's important to note that, you know, all the Army branches have some particular uh, role uh, inside the protection warfighting function. Engineers, for example, are included in the protection warfighting functions, but, you know, the engineers are critical for maneuver uh, movement and maneuver warfighting function as, as much as they are for protection. Same as we, we talked earlier about uh, medical tasks and so forth. So that same holds true for cyber. Uh, and so protection has many stakeholders. Uh, the work is not limited to just one or two or three branches, but protection is about the purpose and the effect produced uh, by the branch, uh, you know, not by the branch of someone's uh, sleeve. It's multi-compo, multi-branch, multi-domain, so bending it into one branch or one installation limits its potential, mm-hmm. right? By design, General Dempsey's vision warfighting functions are interdependent. And, you know, bending certainly helps manage proponency, but, but strict uh, bending or task branches counters the necessary interdependence and limits the commander's ability to leverage multi-domain solutions or, in our case, multi-domain protection. I think the key, what we're looking at, is unity of effort, and unity of command, uh, which will be very, very key as we go forward with the protection warfighting function. Sir. So, <clears throat> sir. Hey, Chris, let me just ask, throw something out there. As a maneuver guy, sir, I always thought of protection as an outcome. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it was baked into your head uh, as an armor guy, for example. All right, so you got a, you're on a platform that's got, is, is heavily protected, right? So we all, we all kind of get that. But, how you conduct operations, how you plan them, contributes to those protection outcomes. And we would call it in the old, you know, at the very junior level, let's just talk about survivability, right? right. But your course of actions that you develop, uh, if I have a supporting attack, uh, for example, uh, or a, uh, a shaping operation uh, in support of a decisive operation, uh, those, those supporting tasks or that, that shaping operation is designed to create a protection outcome that enables uh, that main effort of the decisive operation. And, and that's something that I think culturally we would be well-suited on driving that into each of the branches, you know? Absolutely. I agree with you. And I think as you, as you consider especially moving forward to peer competitors, you really have to start thinking that in some cases what I can protect might actually drive the COA. So when I'm talking MDMP and I'm looking at Okay, what am I, there was a really good article written recently on, on MDO at the division level and below, kind of struggling with those being, having windows of opportunity to actually take some kind of action. So you, you, when you're struggling, you know, as you're wrestling with that, you're also wrestling with, when I do have that window of opportunity, I have to make sure the right things are protected in order to take advantage of that, and that actually might drive a COA. Whereas we were used to in the past, I'm going to develop a COA, 
logistics and uh, protection, you guys figure out how you can make sure that right. that's going to happen. This is almost putting like protection ahead of that and saying, what can I protect? Okay, if I can protect that, protect that in this window of time or in this opportunity, then what can I do as a COA? It's almost the reverse of what we're used to actually thinking about. So Very proactive. Right. Exactly, yeah. very proactive. And so, you know, but there's going to be a balance to that of, you know, risk to force, risk to mission, and how do you keep that going uh, for freedom of action? Yes, sir. Well, and ma'am, you bring up a, a good point. I kind of want to transition now to look at how we operationalize protection because we've already mentioned how there are so many disparate tasks uh, and, and quite diverse. So if you could maybe, could you give us some insight, ma'am, on, on who's responsible for protection on a staff and how the protection cell is manned? Right. So usually there's a, there's a protection chief, so at least division through ASCC. And it, so that could be any number of different officers. When I was in um, Arsent, there, were, there was a colonel that was an MP who was a provost marshal, and there was a colonel that was um, the chemical officer. And they were both in the protection cell. Really, either of them could have been the chief. But the, at that time, the, the chemical officer was the chief for protection. But we've, we've been running a protection integration course, and recently a lot of the, at least at the ASCC level, a lot, it'll end up being the military police officer ends up being chief of protection. But it really could be a number of officers between military police, um, air and missile defense. It could be the provost marshal. It could be a suburban officer. It could be an EOD officer, engineer officer, or an anti-terrorism officer, which would usually be somebody in another branch, and they're designated as the AT officer. So. They can pick by uh, who they think might have the most experience integrating all of that, or they could pick by who's senior. I mean, it's really up to the commander. Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, I haven't obviously attended the protection integration course or done anything like that. So maybe if you could, ma'am, give us some insight into how the protection cell then in integrates all of these the, these tasks to better, better protect the unit. Is there a model or a framework that they can rely on? Well, it, I mean, they have to start with, they've got to be integrated into the normal processes. MDMP, we were just discussing COAs. How, how do I make sure that what is critical and what needs to be protected is part of developing what my course of action is? So that all of the B2C2WGs that run within an operation, I would say it's very important to get the support of the chief of staff and the three to understand that that the protection working group that you run, which is normally where you bring in, so not just the protection cell, because again, with the 16 tasks, you have who's in the protection cell, and you have the other people who aren't normally in the protection cell that also need to integrate for a protection working group, bring those all together, but that working group has to trace through kind of knowledge management to a decision board so that you can actually feed it into all of the right systems. And then it's also in the orders process, it's in the intel process, it's in the targeting process. So it has to be very well integrated throughout the staff. So usually the chief of protection has to be well supported by the chief of staff to know that whatever protection working group is working, it has to feed into the rest of the processes. Otherwise, it will just spin within itself mm -hmm. and never work its way to either decisions for the commander to make, especially what's, what will normally come out of the protection working group when they're working courses of action that come out with your prioritized protection list. So you figure out what are all my threats? What are all my critical uh, assets? What are the vulnerabilities that I have? work that into a model, which we mm -hmm. hope in the future is actually done by machine learning algorithms, but right now is done by a lot of people nugging that out and, yes, and working out what do, what, do we, what do we have, what kind of threat do we have, what do we need to be protected? That'll give you your PPL. 
For people that work uh, ADA, they're used to the CalDAO. Same mm -hmm. kind of discussions. What are my critical assets? And this is what, when you talk at the ASCC level, you talk a lot on air defense when you're talking mm -hmm. on this. You talk, what are my critical assets? There's too many things. I can't, I can't protect them all. So I'm going to have to come up with what I have available. Again, I'm, I'm used to talking air defense at an ASCC level. Then I'm, I put some asset to it. That's my defendant asset list. But there's other things now that I have to figure out. How do I mitigate that? How do I make sure that those still have some level of coverage? And this is where you might also integrate at a different echelon. So you might say, if I'm working at the division echelon, here's my things that were left behind. I just can't cover them. Didn't make the cut line. Okay, could they be covered by a different echelon? Or do I have to work internally another solution, how I keep that all covered? And then that'll all circle back into a, what's uh, a schema protection. So just like you have a schema maneuver, you start producing orders, you'll have a schema protection. What gets dynamic is trying to keep up with the pace of something that's happening, like in warfighters as they're, as they're working their ways now. Attempting to keep that list of what is critical, what's the threat, what should be protected, to keep up with the pace of an operation, that, that'll be the challenge going forward. So it's a dynamic running staff estimate, really, ma'am, right? I mean, so, you know, when I was the 2ID, 2nd Infantry Division, G3, one of the things that I, I found was important to do is to take the functional cells like protection or sustainment or any of the other functional cells um, and make sure they were participating with the integration cells, right? And so your integration cells are current ops, future ops, and plans. And so if those subject matter experts, whoever the person was, you know, that was on shift, that could talk all of those things that were already developed off to the side has to be able to speak authoritatively with the backing of the G3 or the chief of staff, depending on what echelon you're talking about, to make sure that's driven into the scheme of maneuver and the course of action uh, by phase, uh, and that we've accounted for those things as you go. And if there's not somebody doing that, then that runs into what you were talking about, man, which is the risk of we're just talking to ourselves here and we're not, we're trying to glom on afterwards as opposed to being central to the process. It has to make it into orders and cycles, targeting cycle, intel cycle. Got to make it into the orders. Well, having covered the staff function, I'd like to briefly discuss one of the relatively newer protection-focused organizations, and that's the Maneuver Enhancement Brigade, or MEB. Now, General Bonner, can you give us some background on the MEB's mission, capabilities, and organization? I think this might be fruitful down the road. Yeah, it, it will as we uh, as we start talking later about protection brigades. But, you know, we, we started off in 2007 with three uh, active duty brigades, uh, first, third, and fourth. And then, you know, in 2015, we divested of those spaces due to building BCTs in support of the coin. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now, our MEBs are our, our compo two and threes uh, and have worked, uh, you know, they're very well for us. But, you know, in the end, the, uh, it, you know, it's a multifunctional mission command headquarters that's organized to perform uh, support area for the echelon it supports. So it's tailable, it's modular, and it's multifunctional. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really kind of where the, the MEBs are right now in Compo 2 and 3. And, uh, and I think we just got a, a great opportunity as we look at how do we transition to our protection brigade. Yes, sir, we do. Hey, Chris, for our listeners, mm -hmm. when we say Army uh, compos one, two, and three, on one, we mean active duty, two, we mean Army National Guard, and three, U.S. Army Reserve. Uh, so the implications that General Bonner is talking about is, you know, access 
to those capabilities. If you make them central to the operations we want to conduct, Absolutely. Uh, but you have to mobilize them to be able to use them, mm -hmm. uh, it creates challenges on readiness and, and resources and so forth that, that I think everybody's experienced at, at the division and core level. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I wanted to go down to next is just what are the challenges associated with having all of our maneuver enhancement brigades in components two and three? Any, any insight onto how that worked for us over the past couple of years, sir? Well, I'll throw a really early yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in Korea in 2009 and 10, we did three theater-wide exercises. And, and because we were fortunate enough, the MEBs got to come over and participate. We didn't work with the same MEB twice. And we had yeah. three different organizations from three different areas that had three different problems to overcome to mobilize and, and participate in the exercise. And that alone... Uh, was a challenge just getting to know everybody and then form uh, norm and storm your team right and so that was a challenge I, I would tell you from our perspective I know General Bonner's got a lot of first-hand experience with that no uh, absolutely what he's talking about and I think the uh, as we go forward that again I think there's there's a, a great opportunity out there on what we're what we're going to be able to do with the protection brigades and the alignments uh, and try to address exactly what Rich talks about as a challenge that he had uh, in Korea. And so we look forward to that. Sir, I was just going to say, if you can, if, it, if the National Guard and Reserve Unit is actually aligned, so I've got a lot of experience mm -hmm. with Army North with this, all of Army North's down trace are all Reserve National Guard units. But if you can make a, if you have a, and if, if it's someone that's going to be designated aligned, and you have an, usually it requires an MOU uh, with that organization to ensure that their training lines up with your training. So when you have exercises, it's their AT so they can participate. So you don't have people showing up that, you know, and they haven't trained with them before. It's just, it's, it's a, what, you know, in the active component, we get lazy about that and we think it's a lot of extra work. Mm -hmm. But if you really do want to have them be members of the team, you actually have to make that kind of, you know, do that kind of work to make sure that when they, you are asking them to come in fit into the organization they actually already do do know the organization and you can also go back to the reserves and ask for extra training days you can ask that they be moved up in priority so there's different things you can try to do to make that um make that alignment work it just is thinking ahead working ahead trying to make it all line up just to foster that teamwork and build that multi-component interoperability essentially so, right now, which is nothing new no sir before yes sir now so to, to transition to the Protection Brigade, sir, can you give us some background on how the Protection Brigade will be different than a Maneuver Enhancement Brigade going forward? Yeah, so right now we're looking anywhere between four to six uh, active duty uh, Protection Brigades, mm -hmm. right? And so in each one of those, which will, which will be great aligned to, to, uh, to what the Army decides the priorities for those four to six, uh, and then the remaining will be, uh, again, aligned with COMPO two and three organizations. But even inside those brigades, right, you'll have, uh, you'll have the, uh, for instance, take Seaburn, there's only five Seaburn battalions, mm -hmm. right? So even in the active brigades, there's going to be uh, Compo 2 and 3 aligned inside uh, those type of brigades. Mm -hmm. But it all gets still back to the unity of command and unity of effort and where we're trying to get with the, uh, with the brigades to include that relationship between the protection brigade and the uh, the P Corps, the protection coordination, what Neve was talking about earlier, and I think the way we're looking at designing this between the brigade and the protection coordination, I think is going to be really, really be able to enhance division and corps. 
and you have some of the so some of the brigades even if the brigade headquarters is complo two complo three mm -hmm. you still have um, assigned battalions that are active component battalions so that so you'll at least already have that um, connection to the division or the corps depending on where they're assigned that and and the you'll have the staff for that meb to fall in on already mm -hmm. have the connection so the, you know part of what you could say about the meb was difficult to just you know come into a division and not already kind of have that hook in there of some assigned battalion that's already got the relationships for you um and in, so in a lot of these mebs as you even as you trace it out you have one or two uh assigned battalions that are active component all the way out okay well that's yeah, that's quite the change that's a bit different there so <laughs> So I guess my next question would be, is, there's got to be a bill payer, I assume, sir. So how, is there a bill payer for the Protection Brigade, or how do yes. we see that? Yeah, so, so we're slowly working our, our way through uh, of how we're going to design uh, the force right now. But we have done a very good job right now of aligning uh, our active guard and reserve units inside these formations. And, uh, and we believe at this point in time, the, you know, any type of a bill to an Army will be able to look at uh, internal to the Army. Uh, but at this point in time, who exactly is a, is a per se bill pair? Uh, I think it's just a matter of, of not a bill pair, but more of a realignment into this type of a formation. So these, <clears throat> the new protection brigades, I, I understand, are part of a renewed, or a new emphasis, I should say, um, on the, the U.S. Army Concept for Protection 2028 to 2040, um, or all-domain protection, which aligns with the Army's move towards multi-domain, the multi-domain operations um, concept. So, General Bonner, could you give us some, an idea of what we're likely to see under this new concept, um, uh, that how protection will better support multi-domain operations? Yeah, I think the three, uh, the three keys to the concept is really aligned across preserve, deny, and enable. Uh, you know, so protection, uh, you know, preserve the critical assets and uh, reinforces the idea of prioritization, right? So we are studying right now organizations and process across the dot mill PF uh, with this functional, but it's really conceptual lines along preserve, deny, and enable. Mm -hmm. So now I, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second here. I, I get the feeling that protection is already a multi-domain function or it is we've got everything from cyber to missile defense to opsec so is there anything changing how is how is protection evolving can it get any more multi-domain if it already is well i think if you keep it really simple <laughs> right no i mean because the idea is 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 not complicated mm -hmm. right we want to make the army die hard right mm -hmm. we want to make the army harder to kill army forces right that's how you preserve the capability. So if you look at it from that perspective, then you look at the different domains, all right? So, all right, the land domain, we got it. We're an army. The, the army kind of instinctively understands what that involves. But it requires an understanding of the threats, uh, current adversaries, potential future enemies, um, what capabilities they can bring to bear against land forces. All right, so they can bring capabilities to bear on land. Uh, from the maritime domain, some of them uh, are certainly capable of doing that. Uh, cyberspace is a low cost of entry, right? So all of them can bring uh, cyberspace capabilities to bear against ground forces. Uh, our 
big four threats that we talk about all can bring air capabilities to bear against ground forces. And at least two uh, of the four have robust space capabilities that can bring to bear. So that gets you into the seeing the threat, then seeing yourself, and then seeing the operational environment. All right, so that's fundamental to the operations that the Army conducts. Uh, and so there's, before you know what you need to protect against, you kind of need to know what's out there that can hurt you. Uh, and then we kind of have to figure out, uh, like Colonel Nell talked about, uh, in terms of uh, what they can bring to bear against us, what we have to, to counter those capabilities, and then what's the difference? Because that difference is that dangerous space that we operate within that we're going to have to take other measures to protect ourselves and, and not talk about using capabilities, but then talk about how we do force, uh, you know, course of action. We're going to operate in the dark. We're going to use limited visibility to mass movements. We're going to move on larger intervals. We're going to operate dispersed along multiple axes uh, and those kinds of things. Um, because at the end of the day, there's only so many capabilities you can bring to bear, so you have to, to look at how you're actually going to plan and execute the operations you want to conduct. Sir. It'll help inform, uh, you know, risk decisions. Some of the, the biggest decisions you'll have are just risk decisions. Well, mm -hmm. How much risk are you willing to take, or do you change the COA, you know, because you're not willing to take that kind of risk? Or those are probably the biggest things that you'll have. You you also think in the in when you're talking pres preserve, deny, enable, um, I saw a, a really good article that was talking about maybe, you know, when you're talking about protection, like really, really strategic level protection, what you're really talking about especially against a peer competitor, might be resiliency versus mm -hmm. just being able to deny everything. But what systems can you have where you have kind of our old, you know, the comms plan? Where's our redundancy? Where's, where do we have resilience in the system that if something does happen, we still are able to function, we still have our freedom of action maintained because we have resiliency built into that system. And maybe that's really kind of what it is at a strategic level. Yes, ma'am. Well, and Chris, you get to, um all right, so you're looking at the different echelons. The Army operates in echelons, right? So anything from a, a squad up to a theater army uh, or the Army Service Component Command. Um, when we talk about things, you know, it's been an Army emphasis since we started focusing on large-scale ground combat. You know, how do we protect our command posts, mm -hmm. right? And, and so you protect them by making them more survivable. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, what it could mean is uh, I may need to make them a little bit larger, so that I can distribute them over uh, vaster geographical areas and have multiple command posts that provide redundancy. Um, and they give uh, smaller targets for the bad guys to shoot at, right? So the, some of it's counterintuitive. There's folks that say, well, we don't want to, our command posts are already too big. Well, they are because they're all in one spot. Uh, but what we really want to be able to do is break them up so that you have multiple nodes and you can keep some nodes cold, for example, so the enemy can't detect them in the EMS, uh, whereas you have others that can move and displace rapidly enough to confuse the enemy target, uh, targeting process. And so um, in, in the old days, sir, you remember the, the, the tactics, techniques, and procedures. I mean, we used to offset radios and antennas and those kinds of things. Um, so that if they did manage to locate you in the electromagnetic spectrum, what they shot at was not where you were. Um, and so this isn't new. In, in, in many ways, a lot of this stuff is old. It's just that the means that people can detect you are so much more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I think the, the, uh, the regards of how we're looking at synchronizing that across, as you talked about earlier, you know, you know it's, it's a layered approach. 
and and you truly now are looking at from the P Corps through the brigade of that layer approach and being able to help the commander synchronize that. Yes, sir. So one of the things that kind of struck me when I looked over the all domain protection concept and the, and the future of protection was what we already mentioned, which was this proactive protection um, that we're looking at. Now, there seems to be an increased emphasis on active versus passive, which I understand. Um, so for example, when it comes to things like denying enemy freedom of action, there's talk of countermobility operations as a protection function. Um, but this is currently housed under movement maneuver. General Bonner, can you elaborate on this? Is there an expanded or more active role for protection and how this un would change our understanding of, of it? Again, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's a, an expanded role mm -hmm. of, of it, but I, I, would, I would go back to how the commanders look at it, synchronize it. Uh, Neve talked about it earlier. How do you, how do you, we are now looking at how do we posture ourselves for the, for, you know, one or two more moves down mm -hmm. uh, from where we're at right now? And what are we looking at truly how to protect those different assets that we're going to need down you know, and again, that's become, it's a very balanced approach and not all of it is going to be towards, uh, you know, evenly across uh, what we need to protect. And we talked earlier about how we're going to look at it from a risk to mission, risk to force. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that it's new mm -hmm. uh, as you explain it, but um, I do think the, the way that we're looking at prioritizing and synchronizing is uh, more effort that we're putting towards it. Well, it's kind of like we were talking about, sir. Some things are new to you, but they're not new, right? So there's an increased awareness because of the types of operations we've been conducting for essentially since the end of the Cold War, uh, where it's not that protection wasn't important. It wasn't that we were operating against people that couldn't do things to us that we could do to them. And when you talk about peer threats, you're talking what makes them appear is they have capabilities that they can employ against you. Um, in the same way that, that we've been able to uh, employ against others with relative impunity for a long time. But the game is completely different when you're dealing with a peer threat uh, whose deep area, for example, extends into your rear area, right? That's what it corresponds with. And so um, looking at it that way kind of drives us towards, I think, a cultural change. Right. And it is more proactive. And what Colonel Nell, what you regarded as we've got to design our coalition to make sure we can create and exploit those windows of opportunity for maneuver forces to get out there and, and, and win that close fight. And that seems like it's a protection, kind of a protection focus, so. Right, I think, I think you also got to look at, there's a there's an active, very active part too, when you have things at different, um, different echelons, when you're talking multi-layer protection is always kind of it working at many different layers at one time so that you might have air defense with a big umbrella mm -hmm. and then a lot of things underneath it but um, if you're talking about trying to you know when you look at what they did the convergence uh, things recently AFC did and they're thinking when you converge and you're doing something on an offensive action it could be a, send, a shooter from any different domain that's mm -hmm. actually able to do that it's whichever is best positioned at every time well that's also true, I would say, of protection. So which asset at what echelon is best at providing that protection at any given time? It, gets, it can get really like you're trying to stack it all in your mind of how mm -hmm. that all is going to fit together. It does, it seems to me that isn't very passive, that, that you, you are going to have to take a kind of a very active look at, you know, what level is providing what protection at what window of time 
um, and kind of 3D it in your mind. Mm -hmm. Against what priority? Exactly. Because they're all not going to yes, have sir. the same priority, right? And that's, that's, that's where, as we talk about, it's for all the commanders, mm -hmm. all the commanders to be involved in it. So when you talk active-passive, mm -hmm. there's the active, like I've, I'm turning on radars and I'm, I'm doing these kinds of things. I'm, I'm executing air missile defense operations. And then passive is, you know, camouflage and noise and light discipline and all. But there's another way of looking at active and passive, you know. Um, passive, in, in some cases, I'm an armor brigade combat team. Uh, the passive is what somebody else is doing for me to protect me, Okay. So it's those higher echelons. It's whatever those umbrellas of protection are, depending on what capabilities you're using. Um, but the active is what you're doing for yourself. Mm -hmm. All right. So there has to be an active, aggressive attitude about protection within every formation, uh, regardless of what its purpose is and, and how it's employed. And so the old idea, you know, our World War II ancestors would very clearly understand if you were an infantryman every night when you stopped your foot march you dug a foxhole and you dug in right i mean that's when was the last time that that was you know culturally central to the way uh, our formations operated well i mean it's been a long time it's not that we aren't moving that way again now but it's those things i do for myself to to, to generate a protection outcome and not what other people are doing for me. It's, I'm not waiting till the engineers come and dig me in. I'm using terrain uh, to mask observation. Uh, I'm moving in such a way to prevent detection to the maximum possible extent. Yes, sir. Well, I think that sounds, you know, that, that iterates this cultural drive that, that we have to understand protection is everywhere and it, it is everything to a lot of people uh, from the lowest to the highest echelons. And I think we've hit that today. But it kind of brings up an interesting idea, and that's something that I feel like protection may have struggled with in the past is, does it risk becoming irrelevant if it is all things to all people? Is it now just, you know, it's like the old answer, what's the safest thing to do is you get asked what you're doing in the field, you say, I'm pulling security, I'm uh, security, it's the safe thing to do. Is, do we risk that with protection by making it so big, or is that where we want to go with it to drive cultural change? Well, I would throw one thing out there is, I think you, the Army's a big institution, it's a large organization. And so there's elements of protection that somebody has to keep an eye on uh, in terms of the intellectual effort to think about the various problem sets, right? And so it's inherently collaborative, but you have to have a lead. And I think the idea of having a warfighting function means that you're going to have a lead in an organized way to, to think about it. Yeah. Um, whether it gets too big or not, uh, I, I think it's one of those ideas where we agree that there's certain things that everybody's responsible for, and then there are certain things that w the Army assigns responsibility for to, to pay attention to. Otherwise, they don't get the resources, and, and we're not putting the intellectual effort into them. But that's just, you know, a, kind of the, the combined arms view of it, I guess. Well, Arch, I think you, I think you hit it right on the head. And uh, so I, I yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't look at it the same way as it, but, but I do think that. Uh, as we are evolving and changing, and we are moving out of coin, we talked earlier about large-scale combat operations. I think it's critical uh, at this point in time uh, that we do take uh, a serious look at it and how we're synchronized from a protection war fighting function. And so I absolutely believe it's the right direction that we have to go to at this point in time. If you didn't, if you didn't have kind of one um, element trying to focus on it, you might miss, you know, some of the discussions we're having about what, you know, 
this protection cell that you have a division through ASCC levels, you know, all of the sensors that they're going to have when you have the 16 functions out there, all of the data that comes back to them and how they make decisions based on that and what is, what is an algorithm in the future that it runs through that says you need to shift this, the threat has changed, here's how we should change this to work protection. If you don't just have kind of one person working that, trying to work that through entry gate, trying to get something for the staffs of the future to be able to use it, integrate all that data and make decisions very quickly at the pace of what we think uh, combat is going to be in 2035. Uh, you would you would be you'd have a big hole in your swing without having someone kind of designated to do you know that kind of work while you still also have you know the tank battalion commander that's telling his forces you have to do things for yourself at the unit level that also protect you so you have, I think because it spans you know large you just have different people at different levels worrying about it but unless you have someone kind of at the top working the bigger um, bigger picture as General Bonner said you have that one person that's focused on it you would you would lose all of the uh, the important things that come with like having a portfolio getting funding for a portfolio mm -hmm. all of that is lost if there's not someone that actually runs the program and someone that's pushing it to get into those into the, the courses of action and, and working with the other cells on the staff absolutely yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I think you just cannot lose really, you know, the, the, the theme to it is unity of command, unity of effort. And if you don't have that the way we're going right now, I do think then it does become too big and it ver becomes very unmanageable. And so uh, I think if you continue to go back to that theme, unity of command, unity of effort, you really start to see where we're going with this protection. Yes, sir. So, but but no uh, no chance we're going to change the from the maneuver support center of excellence to the protection center of excellence, sir. I see no change. At all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Well, gentlemen, ma'am, is there anything I missed? Anything left unsaid? You know, uh, one thing we didn't really get into, Chris, was this. Uh, you know, so the maneuver support center uh, or MISCO is the proponent for protection, but there's these other key stakeholders out there in, mm -hmm. in the other COEs. And I'll, I'll let General Bonner take that across the finish line, but I would just point out, you know, we have this warfighting function construct that, you know, there are collections of branches that work together. Uh, but there's overlap in all of these. None of them are 100% standalone. We've assigned responsibility for them, but when you take a combined arms approach to thing, all of the warfighting functions contribute to each other in kind of a uh, dynamic and holistic way and protection what's maneuver without fires yes ma'am or maneuver without protection or mm -hmm. and, and so even if you're in a maneuver unit you know i i have what three or four mi soldiers and a combined arms battalion maybe that means company commanders and scout platoon leaders are are performing intel functions right they're collecting information and so forth and and, and that would apply and, and then you sustainment I mean, you can't do anything without sustainment. So there's a sustainment piece to this. And certainly sustainment, first and foremost, probably thinks about protection as much as, any, as, much as anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and it informs the way that they operate. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we discussed earlier, you know, I used the engineers as an example. Uh, and, and so uh, they're, they're with uh, Maneuver. And so the MPs are. And so they're working across that. And the same thing with protection. And so uh, I absolutely agree with you, Rich. I really appreciate the time and the effort 
uh, of you all putting this together and, and Rich and your team, uh, Neve, come up. Uh, I would end with one thing of when we look at it, uh, and I should have said this early on. So Colonel Nell is the MP Commandant, but she's also the DCG for protection. Mm. And so that's the way I look at it at the Maneuver Support Center of Excellence. I now have three different DCGs with my regiments, and she has the lead for protection. And so uh, that's how we look at from the importance of it from, from the MISCO uh, perspective. And so uh, very, very fortunate to have Colonel Nell as the DCG for protection. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap things up. Thank you for joining me today. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, or the Maneuver Support Center of Excellence. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this is Breaking Doctrine.